Welcome this morning. Who's excited to be here? All right. People who are excited to be in the house this morning, love it, love it. All right. So as uh, the wonderful slides probably uh, clued you in, we are journeying through the Old Testament women in our series right now. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, Justin kicked us off by talking about Eve and talking about uh, the role of women in general, uh, the, the meaning of helper and all those other great things. Uh, so if you missed that one, go back to the sermon catalog. You can find it. It was great. Uh, last week, we had a message on Sarah. Yes. Yes. All right. So if you missed that one, also good. So we're just kind of moving through the chronology at this point. Today, we're going to be doing a uh, two for one, actually. Uh, we're covering both Leah and Rachel. Uh, so the story of Leah and Rachel kind of comes up in Genesis 29. And so that's kind of where we're going to be uh, navigating the text today. We have a good bit of terrain to cover because we're going into 29, 30, and a little bit of 35, just a little bit. So uh, for our time together, I thought it would be a good thing to just kind of journey through the text and figure out how these characters are, how they develop, and what things we can learn from their lives, right? So... As we read the Leah and Rachel story, it helps to take a brief look around at a bit of the context. It gives us a better understanding of who our characters are and how they fit into the larger story and even what conflicts emerge when, uh, within the narrative so far. So for our passage, right before 29, we see that Jacob is on the run from his brother Esau because he tricked his brother out of his birthright, right? So uh, feeling the retribution of violence at his feet, he escapes. He goes back to his ancient ancestral land, uh, and he returns to Hebron, right? And he finds a special someone as he is looking for his relatives, uh, namely Rachel, when he comes across Laban's kinsfolk. So let's pick up the text in chapter 29. Uh, does everyone need more time to get there? Chapter 29, following chapter 28, before uh, chapter 30 just so if you need a little bit of stalling time to find it on your phones or your Bibles or whatever, or if you have it by memory, you know, maybe you need to like flip the mental pages back. You're good? Okay, great. So the text says, and I'm reading from the NRSV. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field and three flocks of sheep lying there beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the uh, well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the, sh the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well, water the sheep, and put the stone back in the place of the mouth of the well. Okay. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we are from Haran, not Hebron, Haran. Uh, he said to them, do you know Laban, son of Nahor? They said, we do. He said to them, is it well with him? Yes, they replied. And here is the daughter, Rachel, coming with the sheep. He said, look, it is still broad daylight. It is not the time for the animals to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together. And the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. So in case you came to Love Chapel Hill with any questions about ancient sheep tending practices, don't worry, we have you covered this morning. All right, moving on. When he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. Now, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of his mother's brother Laban, and the sheep of the mother's brother Laban, 
Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock and his mother's, of his mother's brother's Laban. Mother's brother Laban. Say it five times fast. I dare you. Uh, then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. So we have a nice, nice little family meeting out in the middle of the wilderness. Great. So essentially what we have here is the beginning of the Rachel and Jacob love story. If you know anything about how the story goes from here, well, let's continue. When Laban heard the news about his sister's son, Jacob, he ran to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, truly, you are, bone, you are my bone in my flesh. And he stayed with them for a month. So after the introductions, Jacob is welcomed by his extended family. And what follows next, if you've grown up in church circles, is probably the more familiar part of the story, right? So the author of Genesis continues. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? And now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were lovely, which is another way of saying in the ancient world soft, uh, or that uh, it, it translates out as she didn't kind of meet the cultural standard of beauty, right? Uh, she was softer on the eyes than her sister. So Leah's eyes were lovely, and Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Most people comment on it and say, oh, they're giving a, lot, a little bit more description towards Rachel. Maybe this is trying to like one over the other. Uh, the historic meaning of names, when we're looking at this, uh, Leah kind of translates out to cow. Do with that as you wish. But anyways, they're trying to draw a little bit of contrast. Similar contrasts are going to follow as we're getting into the narrative. So with all of that, Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years. He's saying this to Laban. I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel, the one he, he met at first. You know, maybe you're trying to play it off as a love at first sight thing. Great, go for it. Laban said, It is better that I give you to her than that I should give her to any other man. A classic father-in-law father line by the sound of it, right? So he says, stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Seven years. Seven years, and he said that it just flew by in a breeze. Wow. So let's note that Jacob is a fugitive from his own family. He has no dowry to offer. Thus, Jacob works for his uncle Laban in order to take Rachel as his wife, right? He doesn't have it beforehand, so he's doing it now. So this has got to be some type of different pursuit, right? Especially as we're thinking about our day and age today. He's willing to work seven years, and the narrator tells us that in the span of time seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Important note, besides the Song of Songs, right, this is the primary example in Scripture where marriage for love appears as a key motif, right? So if we're trying to examine the places where this kind of comes up in Scripture, we have Song of Songs, and we have this, right? Just in case you were wondering. 
We continue on with the story. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. He's finished the seven years. So Laban gathered together all of the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her maid. And when the morning came, it was Leah. Surprise, right? He, Jacob goes into the tent thinking that he has just married Rachel, uh, that this is the way that the ceremony has gone, and surprise, it's Leah. And before we get too down on Jacob, let's think, this incident follows a wedding feast in the ancient world, so he may not be in the soundest states of mind, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, maybe uh, too, many, too many grape juices to drink. Uh, second, uh, we're talking about Jacob going into a tent at night. So visibility is perhaps quite low, unless the moon was shining extra bright and you could see through the tent. I, I don't know. Let's give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, right? Anyways. Not looking, not looking so great right now, huh? So, and Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? So here, the deceiver has become the deceived ironically. The conniving one is now the subject of his own former actions. Remember that Jacob tricks his brother out of his birthright. So now he's getting a little bit of a taste of his own medicine. Uh, one, one commentator likens this to a game of chess, right, where there are two expert players involved in a riveting matchup, right? How, are they, how is this going to play out? As we read more of Jacob and Laban's story, this, this continues. This, this little rivalry continues until they finally part ways. But we're not really focused on that today. We're trying to stick with Leah and Rachel. So Laban says, uh, using his cunning mind, Laban says, this is not done in our country, giving the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week with this one, right? Because there was a whole marriage week. Complete the week with this one, and we will give the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Seven years down, seven more to go. Jacob did so and completed her week, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as a wife, right? So now Jacob is married to Rachel and Leah at the same time. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her maid. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. He served Laban for another seven years. So, in a Hollywood ending, the story likely would end here, right? Uh, depending, you might be familiar with the story up until this point. Uh, Jacob finally gets to be with Rachel, even at the cost of seven more years of work, and the challenge is overcome. The patient pursuit of both characters finally pays off in the end, right? Uh, right up, up until this point, Jacob is kind of considered as like one of the active characters and kind of Leah and Rachel are just kind of going along with this, right? Uh, but anyways, the two, the two characters that we have from the beginning that we thought were going to make it, well, hey, they're together. They've done it. Uh, at this point in the story, it's okay to give a nice hearty ah, right? And you would probably be right to do so. As I said earlier, besides the Song of Songs, this is the other instance in Scripture where we see the motif of marriage for love coming into effect. Otherwise, marriage in the ancient world 
uh, especially the ancient Near East, was intended for producing children and contributing to the well-being of the family. But we see something different in the relationship between Jacob and Rachel. We see a dedication and a persistence in their pursuit. And many cannot venture to think about this today. So if this were a Hallmark movie, or if we aim to uh, achieve that classic Hollywood ending, I imagine that filmmakers would probably choose to end the story, like kind of bookend the story, after Jacob finally gets to marry Rachel. They've done it. The film would likely fade to black. The credits would begin to roll. The happy song would begin to play in the background. But if we're reading through Genesis, the story doesn't end there. Actually, the two sisters seem to be side characters up until this point, right? But what follows is them coming to the forefront of the story. So as the narrative continues, the events that follow seem to capture much more about who these women are and how their lives are significant to our message today. So before we move on, some of us in this room may interpret the outcomes of this marriage event differently. The Hollywood ending seems to be uh, seems to overshadow one of these women who is left shouldering immense hurt. To be clearer, perhaps we examine this marriage event and feel a bit of empathy for Leah. Leah seems to be a pawn in her father's game. Because of the actions of another, she is the one who is now committed to a marriage where she is overshadowed by her sister, a.k.a. the beauty queen or the one who better exhibits their cultural standards of beauty. And the text says that she is explicitly unwanted by her husband. She is loved less. Leah, who seems to be the protagonist of the second half of the story, is beaten down by life because of the factors that are outside of her control. And so... Let's resume. In verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she named him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked on my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Mm. Surely now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this also, the son also. And she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be joined to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was Levi. She conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah and then she ceased bearing. Pause. A couple of items to note here. First, when Leah feels beaten down and unwanted by her husband, she resorts to measures that might help her feel loved in her husband's eyes. And also note that she is crediting the Lord for opening her womb. She does the same with her second child, and her fourth child, we see Leah moving to a place where she accepts her circumstances and chooses to praise the Lord. I also want to point out where God is acting in the story. God sees Leah when she is feeling unloved, unwanted, or probably forgotten in her relationship. And immediately we know that we can take comfort 
in the fact that God sees us in our seasons of struggle. Sometimes this is a great comfort in and of itself for followers of Jesus, right? God sees us in the valley. God sees us when we're feeling at our lowest, when we're feeling forgotten, right? But God also chooses to work in Leah's life. In this season of struggle in Leah's life is where God begins to establish the 12 tribes of Israel, which we follow through the Old Testament and see leading up to the life of Christ, where God brings rescue to our world. So when times are hard, God is still working things together for good, right? We don't see these things, but in the grand scheme, God is still working. He's still good. He is still pursuing us when it doesn't feel like others are. So let's look at Rachel. Uh, chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Sound a little dramatic? Maybe, but also it's highlighting a deep groan of her heart, right? Uh, think about where, the, where a character would have to be in order to say something like this. I'll probably get back to it later, but I almost want to think, if, if Leah is feeling forgotten by her husband, this seems like a cry or a groan of someone's heart where they almost feel forgotten by God, right? If you're unable to do these things, if you have this narrative in your mind where, man, this is not how this picture was supposed to go, sometimes that can lead us to being feeling forgotten on a more cosmic level, right? That something's wrong with us in the grand scheme of things. I'm just trying to empathize with our character here. So, what is Jacob's response? Jacob became very angry with Rachel and said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld you from the fruit of the womb? Right, is this his fault? Then she said, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear upon my knees, and that I may too have children through her. So she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Now, we're not very far along in Genesis at this point. Well, I guess we're a considerable way through. But we're not through very far uh, through the story of Scripture. Uh, who else might this sound like in Scripture? <clears throat> who else might this sound like in Scripture? Who else, <clears throat> when they don't think that they're able to uh, bear children, uh, gives their maid to their husband. If you were thinking Sarah, you would be correct. Right? So we have a character kind of following into this old narrative arc, right? Uh, when they, quite frankly, just kind of don't have that trust in God, when they don't have that firm foundation of belief that things are going to play out. They take matters into their own hands. So then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she named him Dan. Then Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. Doesn't sound like it's necessarily her victory, but her maid's, but still, let's move on. So she named him Naphtali. So notice how this narrative now takes the tone of a competition and how Rachel speaks. It is as if part of her identity is bound up in being able to produce more offspring than her sister. Apparently, being the more 
favored sister by Jacob is not enough. And in doing so, she slips into the pattern of another famous figure in her lineage who gives the servant to her husband when they have lost sight of the possibility for bearing children. It's possible, too, that Rachel potentially sees herself or fears seeing herself as unwanted because of her barrenness, right? Getting locked into this mindset of compare and contrast. Right? Continuing on, verse 9. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her maid Zilpah, now just like Rachel, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, good fortune, so she named him God. Leah's maid Zilpah then bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for the women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. And the difference in names is so shocking. The tone is largely a positive one when we're considering the names that Leah is giving. Good fortune, happy, right? Even before that, God sees me where I am, right? These types of names. The name, I will praise the Lord, right? We have Leah's names, and then we have Rachel's names over here, where it seems to be more competitive. Uh, God is giving me, you know, this thing, so I can now be competitive, right? There's there's a difference in the way that they're kind of voicing their concerns, right? And the thing about the names in this passage, right, is that we don't always get their direct feelings, right? But we do see a lot of their character and how they express names, how they how they act right? Interesting part. We're talking about characterization. Verse 4, in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field. Some of you guys might be thinking about uh, the Harry Potter reference. Uh, Was that Professor Sprout who's like telling people how to like pull up the mandrakes out? Uh, Actually, like the the shape would probably look the same. Uh, Mandrakes would have been an aphrodisiac in the ancient world, so... uh, if you were uh, trying to procreate, then this would be a good thing to acquire. So read reading this. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Okay. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. All right, the aphrodisiac. But she said to her, it is a small matter that you have taken away my husband. Would you take away my son's mandrakes also, kind of adding insult to injury, right? Leah already feels like at the bottom of the pyramid, uh, and now it's like, oh, you want to take this as well? Goodness. So Rachel said, then he may, uh, Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. Doesn't sound like a very healthy relationship, if you're asking me. Uh, you have to hire someone. Paying for services. Uh, at this point, if uh, if Rachel is mod- modeling uh, Sarah in the grand narrative of the story, uh, how should we say this? Uh, Leah is kind of modeling her father, right, in the sense of like purchasing and selling, uh, is what some commentators will tell you. So. He lay with her that night, and God heeded Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. 
And Leah said, God has given me my hire because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then, Leah said, God has endowed me with a good dowry. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. Over and over again, they think that they can finally uh, feel wanted by the person who should want them by going towards these sorts of needs, right? Does Jacob finally... Does Jacob finally uh, express this towards her? Can anyone take a guess? Hmm. So she named him Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel also, and God heeded her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son, and God has taken away my reproach. And she named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Right? So Rachel finally bears a son, names him Joseph, and she's expecting, okay, from here, things should go well. <sighs> things to note here. <clears throat> one of the themes that kind of emerges so far is the one of being wanted versus being unwanted. And especially, what drives us, what drives human beings, you and I, when these feelings start to creep up. For our characters in this story, it is resorting towards things that they think that are in their control, right? They think, okay, if I, if I have children, maybe this will happen. Uh, if I do this, maybe this will happen, right? They're resorting to things that they feel like they can tr- control. Um, this, isn't, this is a typical thing, right? Uh, <clears throat> I think someone, someone had talked about, uh, maybe this is just lore, but like if you're super stressed, right, you tend to do things that you can control. Uh, if you're very stressed out about work, sometimes you'll come home and you'll just start cleaning the house because that's something that you can control. When you think that you can't control something, you resort to the things that you think are within your means. When you cannot do those things, you tend to get frustrated, right? All of the, all of the blocks start to break down. Essentially, <clears throat> we have... Uh, a really good case study into how people are dealing with the circumstances of life. When the circumstances of life come up, how do we respond, right? <clears throat> so in this story, uh, one of those characters tends to respond better than the other. Not always, but tends to respond better than the other. Leah tends to be the person who grows through the experience. She tends to accept uh, her circumstances, accept the hardships of life, and Early on in the story, she's moving towards a place of praise. She can uh, consider herself happy despite everything that's going on. Rachel, we kind of see a downward trajectory, right? We start high whenever the whole love story happens, the whole Hollywood ending, but as we keep going on and on and on and on and on, it seems like Rachel is becoming more and more short-sighted into the things that she can't control. She's thinking that... Uh, she needs to have children in order to be wanted by her husband. Maybe there are feelings of abandonment too. She feels like she's going to die if she's unable to do this, right? How far do you have to be before that voice starts coming up? Before those voices start to be what you proclaim over your children? In those uh, names, right? These would have been uh, symbolic 
they would have been more of a, a prophecy over your children, like proclaiming some sort of word or truth over their destiny. And right, one of them is able to kind of see hope in everything, and one of them is able or tends to see like the competition wanting to hold on to those things. In the Orthodox tradition, apparently, uh, there is a, how would you say it, a practice where mothers would give a blessing to their daughters. And what they would say is they would pray that their daughters would be more like Leah in the way that they would respond, right? The way that they would be able to praise God through life circumstances. The way that they would continue to uh, persevere through the difficulties, right? It's odd that the person who is overlooked is portrayed in the second part of the Rachel Leah story as kind of the heroine, right? The person that we would model. It's not often the times the person that we would think based on some of the popular stories that we tend to hear. So, <clears throat> moving towards the end. Uh, we want to look over to Genesis 35. I don't know if it'll be on the screen, but it's really short, so I just wanted to read it out for you. This is uh, on the birth of Benjamin and the death of Rachel. So Genesis 35, 16 says, Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel was in childbirth, and she had a difficult labor. All right, so she is getting that second son, but the labor is difficult. And when she was in her difficult labor, the midwife said to her, Do not be afraid, for now you will have another son. Right? This is the thing she's looking forward to. As her soul was departing, for she did die, she named him Ben-Oni, which translates out to my struggle, right? Ben-Oni, my struggle. And this is the name that she's choosing to pronounce over her son. But his father called him Benjamin, right? He, Jacob actually has to step in to reverse that name, to say something that is hopeful, right? So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Bethlehem, sounds familiar. Uh, comes up much later. And Jacob sets up a pillar at her grave. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. And Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. So overall, the big picture questions that seem to arise from the second half of the text are the following. One, what do humans do when we feel unwanted? Second, how does God view us, and how does God want us to view ourselves in him? If we're just thinking big, big picture, how do we process this? Here are two. First of all, it's helpful to know that God sees us in those places when his people feel unwanted, and that he, he moves in spite of their worldview, in spite how they're interpreting these things, right? When Rachel is saying all these competitive things and trying to ascribe God in that situation, you know, God is still working. He still sees his people, right? He's not waiting for us to have the right worldview, all of the T's crossed, the I's dotted before he moves. He sees us and he works in our spaces despite how we're, how we're acting, how we're viewing reality, all of those things, right? And the other thing is that he sees. The number of times where the text says God saw them where they were at, sometimes that's a really huge comfort to us, right? When we don't feel seen. So, 
uh, of these two points, first, let's quickly talk about the reality of feeling unwanted. When humans, you and I, feel unwanted, we go to places where we wouldn't usually go. Unnatural places. It wouldn't be our first choice, anyways. We have the potential to retreat from something or someone, to turn to something or someone, or maybe we turn into something or someone when we feel, feel beaten down by life. Let me say that again. We have the potential to retreat from something or someone, to turn to something or someone, or maybe we turn into something or someone when we feel, feel beaten down by life. When we feel unwanted, we humans are about the business of like saving face, right? You've heard that expression. Recovering something that we think was lost in order to convince ourselves that we are okay. When we feel unwanted, we tell ourselves lies about our circumstances or we project our feelings about a circumstance, right? Such as the naming of names, right? It's one of the ways we kind of figure out about our characters. So think about how Rachel speaks unkind names over her sons, names that are meant to be a word over their lives because she feels like she is losing somehow. And she takes these feelings and pronounces them on others around her. So kind of moving towards uh, some applications. This isn't a new thing in our world, right? We encounter people who wrestle with these feelings all the time. Maybe it's you in the room today. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a family member, right? One of the things that we are called to do, one of the things that we are, uh, as people who are in community and looking out for others, is to see and to be involved in others' lives, right? Uh, When they are not kind of feeling on top of things, when they're starting to project these narratives, we are kind of able to step in to speak truth, right? So as we're we're moving through, uh, what what does this story mean to us as followers of Jesus? So as I was preparing, uh, the story of Rachel and Leah is significant in the way that the narrative thoughtfully probes the feeling of being unwanted that so many people, including followers of Jesus, struggle to overcome. The narrative is significant to us because it shows us concrete cases where God inserts himself into the picture and makes himself known to his beloved ones. Notice I said beloved ones in their distraughtful circumstances. This is a reminder that God meets us in the moments when our hearts and minds are focused on our circumstances. Think about Peter in the New Testament who attempts to walk out to Jesus on the lake but gets sidetracked by his circumstances, the waves, and finds rescue in Jesus' outstretched hand. So also does Leah find comfort in her spiritual walk when she reorients her gaze, right? When she reframes how she's seeing life. Uh, one, one pastor or preacher talks about this as like second half of life spirituality, where in the first half you're kind of constantly battling the waves, just trying to per- persevere, and then by the second half you should have this, uh, this renewed perception of the world where you're able to say, despite all of these circumstances that I'm having to overcome, God is still here, God is still moving, and I can depend on that. <clears throat> Moreover, the sermon... Uh, the sermon means that we too can find hope 
when we feel unwanted or unaccepted in this world, even if we can't uh, secure feelings of value from those who we value. Example, friends, family, colleagues, spouses, neighbors, you name it, right, who are in our midst. Uh, we can find this rest and find it in the fullness from the one who loves us beyond our wildest imaginations, right? We can find this rest in God, who is our firm foundation, right? So many of the circumstances are always shifting around us, but if we place uh, our lives on that firm foundation of Jesus Christ, right, then we'll find comfort, we'll find solace, we'll find rescue. Finally, this passage is a comfort, or can be a comfort to us, because it helps us know that we are seen. It helps us know that we are seen, and we are seen by God. For this story, I think uh, we tend to give Rachel maybe a bad rap. She's the sister who seems to have everything going for her. She is the apple of Jacob's eye. However, she is discontent. She wants so badly to produce sons, but she is barren. And as the story goes, God opened the womb of Leah when he saw that she was unwanted by Jacob. So eventually, after trying and trying and trying, she feels helpless. The attitude here seems to be the type of helplessness of essentially feeling unwanted by God, right? The thing we talked about earlier. So how could it possibly be that I'm unable to overcome this? Uh, what could I possibly do to deserve this? These are some of the things that we tend to roll over in our minds. How could it be that I go through this? What could I do to deserve this, right? Some narratives that we kind of feed ourselves. And, you know, we imagine living in a world much different from our own where, you know, for women in particular, uh, the role of a wife was to produce, produce offspring. And the stress and the shame of not being able to carry out this reality, having no idea why you were unable to make this happen. So to cope with the feeling of being unloved by another is a tremendous difficult, tremendously difficult reality. But to shoulder the feeling that you are somehow not valued or not loved by God of the universe the God who's so intentionally, or is so intentional that he knows the numbers of hair on your head, that impression, right, to feel abandoned by God is tragic, if not just outright dreadful. It's a whole other degree of loneliness. Nevertheless, God shows himself. God shows himself despite where we're at. Sometimes we get so enmeshed in our circumstantial loneliness that we forget that God is with us, that God is for us, and that we are God's beloved, that we are wanted by God, so that you are wanted by God. No matter what's going on in the world, you are wanted by God. Your friends, your neighbors, your family members are wanted by God. We are wanted by God. So a couple of things. When we're talking about being wanted by God, uh, Justin, if you want to start coming up, because he's going to lead us in communion. Practical things that can help us reorient our gaze. So I talked about earlier, uh, we are in a Christian community, right? We're here for one another. We're looking out for one another. When we start to speak these lies over ourselves or over our circumstances around us, we're able to help each other out, right? That's one of the beautiful things about being in the Christian community. So what are some things that we can do when we are 
over uh, when we're facing these, right? Because guarantee every one of us is going to feel these things, these emotions at some point in our walk with God, just in our experience in this world, right? What are some things that we can do? One of them, be in Christian community, right? Be in Christian community. There's so much value that comes from being with one another, journeying with one another, right? Second thing, and this is actually something that if you're trying to search, uh, if you're trying to search these things online, right, uh, there are different suggestions that come up. One of them is journaling. Journaling, creating a spiritual journal, a prayer journal, uh, actually just voicing your concerns where you are with God, right? Just being able to process. It's one of those tools that you can use to gain perspective on life, right? Sometimes you can go into a journaling practice, they say, having so much on your mind, and then as you're going through it, it's actually cathartic, it's releasing, it's helping. There's something about the Holy Spirit that's in that process, right, uh, where you're able to find comfort. Third thing, third thing. This is just a really practical one. Something you could do right now, something you can do today as you're walking out, something that you can do every single day of the week is practicing uh, speaking a positive name over your life, right? When you're feeling unwanted and that you probably don't matter, what you can do is remind yourself that you are a child of God. We have these worship songs that sing so emphatically, I am a child of God. Someone I used to know, uh, still do know, it's not past tense, someone I still do know, he will always, always tell people, uh, especially in spiritual formation circles, like, and just as a word of encouragement, as you are... uh, going through life, just remind yourself that you are a prince or you are a princess of the kingdom of the living God. You are a prince or a princess of the kingdom of the living God. Sometimes having that reminder, right, that despite what the world has, that God still sees you, God still pursues you, God still values you, can make so much of the difference in how we just walk through our day-to-day lives. So, those three things. Be in Christian community. Take times to reflect with God. Pray. Use a prayer journal. These sorts of things. And remind yourself that you are God's beloved. And when you frame your life around being God's beloved, you too can be like Leah. Let's pray. Jesus, your word is speaking to us still today. Thank you for Caleb and his careful walk through this very difficult text. There's a story from long ago that reminds us as we look around at how messed up the world is today around us. It's been messed up for a long time. But God, you are at work and you are speaking hope and bringing a way of redemption even through 
the stories of oppression, the stories of broken relationship, the stories of self-seeking power. God, you are at work sometimes in spite of it, but God, to bring about the goodness that you set out from the foundations of the world. And so meet us here at this table today. We pray over the bread and the cup, God, that we would encounter you to know that you see us in this moment with all that we carry. And you see us in the pain, in the unspeakable parts of our lives that we want to hide. We tend not to share because we worry about what others will think. But God, what you ask of us is a broken and contrite heart. God, open before you in surrender to say we can't do it on our own. And so we need you. We need you today got to meet with us here that we know that we are not worthy on our own but we are worthy because you love us that you made us that we bear your image so God may we taste and see today again your goodness In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. And so he invites us to his table. This is Jesus' table. It's not mine. It's not Love Chapel Hills. It is his table. He makes the guest list, and you're all on it. There's nothing that you can do to earn your way onto that guest list. He invites you because he loves you. We look at Jesus' life. He continually reaches to those who are the most unlikely. Right? He reaches to the marginalized. All the people he picked for his team were the ones that no one else picked. And so he met with them around the table over and over again. And what sign, what sign could we possibly need to know how much he loves us? So beyond the shadow of a doubt, he gave his own life that we might have life to the fullest. And so the simple sign that he 
sat with the disciples on his last night with them, the common bread and the common cup. He said, each time you receive this, do this in remembrance of me, that my body was broken and my blood was poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins and that you might have life everlasting. And so friends, this is a sign for you today. As you receive the bread, you take it and dip it in the cup. You receive it and know in your heart of hearts that he gave it all for you. So we invite you to come today. We're going to come down to your right. We'll come across the front and our servers are ready. They'll tear off the bread for you and you dip it in the cup. You can take it here. You can take it back to your seat. Just reflect that he loves you. You are his beloved. Come to the table.